Welcome to the Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPKN, the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show is Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who is a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University, member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference, the American Association of University Professors. Ruth also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a theatrical director with the Westport Community Theater. And Ruth Ann is here with us in the studio today. Welcome, Ruth. Glad, Hi, glad to see you this morning. Glad to be here. Richard Hill, on the phone today, hosts First Tuesday Rainy Day Radio and Organic Farm Stand, and is a rotating host of the program, Mike Check. Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. I'm Scott Harris, host of uh, WPK and Weekly Public Affairs Program Counterpoint and Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, uh, of which both uh, Ruth and Richard contribute. Uh, today we'll be talking about the tragic events unfolding in Israel-Palestine. And we're well aware that following the horrendous violence in Israel and Gaza, emotion is understandably running very high. People's blood is boiling on all sides. This morning we'll work toward having a respectful and civil conversation. Before we begin our conversation with our guest today, I, w I wanted to run down some of what we know about the conflict in the latest news from Israel-Palestine. On the early morning of October 7th, one day after the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, Hamas, the governing authority in the Gaza Strip, launched an unprecedented and brutal attack on Israel by land, air, and sea, massacring Israeli men, women, and children. Hamas militants slaughtered 260 young people attending an outdoor music festival near the Gaza border. It's estimated that Hamas has kidnapped up to 150 Israelis, possibly including uh, U.S. citizens as well, and brought them back to Gaza uh, for what we're told is holding them as hostages. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu responded by declaring war on Hamas and ordered airstrikes and missiles targeting the densely populated Gaza Strip, home to more than 2 million people. As of the evening of October 13th last night, the death toll from the violence in Israel has passed 1,300 people killed and 3,200 injured, and at least 1,799 people have been killed and more than 7,000 injured in Gaza. At least eight journalists and 11 UN staff workers have also been killed in Gaza thus far. There are reports that Israeli settlers and soldiers have killed 51 Palestinians in the West Bank and two villages have been depopulated after these attacks. U.S. officials report that 27 American citizens have died in the Hamas attack and 14 are missing. There's an estimated 500 to 600 Palestinian Americans now inside Gaza. President Biden, who ordered a U.S. aircraft carrier strike group to sail to the eastern Mediterranean, pledged full support, and new U.S. arms shipments are now on their way to Israel. Israel has blocked all food, water, and fuel from entering Gaza, and all electric power in the territory has been cut off. The Israeli military is preparing for an imminent ground evasion into Gaza, uh, and they've said that their goal is to wipe Hamas off the face of the earth. Israel has told more than one million Palestinians to leave northern Gaza in less than 24 hours, 
a task that the United Nations says is impossible. Joining us this morning on Resistance Roundtable is Shelley Altman, chairperson of the New Haven chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace. Jewish Voice for Peace has 70 chapters and 400,000 members and supporters across the U.S., as well as some uh, 1.2 million social media followers, and as well as a, a rabbinical council. Shelley, both Israeli and Palestinian civilians have suffered the most in this bloody conflict. Israelis slaughtered by Hamas militants and Palestinians now dying in large numbers under Israeli bombs and missiles targeted uh, one of the most densely populated urban areas in the world. I wonder, as we, as we begin this conversation, Shelley, please share your unique perspective with our audience on the current war, its relation to the 75-year Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and why it seems that we've now entered yet another chapter and what seems like an endless cycle of bloodshed and vengeance between these two peoples. Thank you so much for having me on, on the program. Um, what I'd like to do is start with a poem, an excerpt from a poem that was written by Puerto Rican Jewish activist <clears throat> Aurora Levin Morales. We cannot cross until we carry each other, all of us refugees, all of us prophets. No more taking turns on history's wheel, trying to collect old debts no one can pay. The sea will not open that way. This time, that country is what we promised each other. Our rage pressed cheek to cheek until tears flood the space between, until there are no enemies left. Because this time, no one will be left to drown, and all of us must be chosen. This time, it's all of us or none. I appreciate the opportunity to to present the American Jewish uh, viewpoint on this, Scott and, uh, and Ruthann and Richard. Um, I'm, I have to say that uh, I wish that we had, I really wish that we had a Palestinian viewpoint present. The Palestinian viewpoint is silenced so often in our country, and especially now with the drumbeat of war prevalent in the country, it's hard to hear what Palestinians are saying. So I, I really just need to get that in. Sure. What, I, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about safety, because we hear that... Um, Jewish people need to be safe. We all need to be safe. And what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about what um, what uh, Peter Beinert, who's an um, academic, a, a professor of journalism and political science at uh, at Christie um, uh, University of New York, and also uh, is a journalist and uh, a commentator on these issues. And so Peter says, and uh, sort of paraphrasing him, when Gaza is leveled and it's all over, will we, what, what, what next? Uh, this doesn't keep Jews safe. And Peter says, if beating up, blockading, bombing Palestinians was going to keep Jews safe, they would have been safe a long time ago. This never would have happened. Um, leveling the place, killing till God knows how many people, and then what? Um, Hamas was not there in Gaza in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. Um, and so Palestinians have been fighting against displacement and oppression long before Hamas. And if you get rid of Hamas, some other organization will form and we'll be back where we are. 
And so Peter is saying you have to deal with the root of the problem. If you leave lift cheek to jowl, they don't have a decent, decent life, people are going to mess with you. And the lives of Israeli Jews and Palestinians are inextricably intertwined. And I think that gets back to what uh, the, the poem from uh, Aurora Levin's Morales is saying. We have to acknowledge each other's uh, humanity. And right now, that's not happening. It's not happening. The Israelis are calling the folks in Gaza animals, and you know, and you know, people in Gaza have been, and, and in the West Bank, for that matter, just different different forms of imprisonment. But it's really the same thing. For seventy five years, this situation has been developing in the way that it has, and people are just not going to put up with that. And so the Hamas invasion. Or, or assault on Israel was horrific. It's a war crime. And in fact, um, some of the victims in Israel that were killed by Hamas at the kibbutz on October 7th, one of them was a man named Hayam Katzman, who was an activist against the expulsion of the West Bank community at Masafriyata. So they killed someone who was, who was doing activism in support of Palestinians. Vivian Silver, an Israeli hostage in Gaza, is known to many of its residents as the person that they meet at the Erez crossing between Gaza and Israel, who advocates for and facilitates their transfers to Israeli hospitals for treatment. Uh, the war has made it impossible to report on individual Gazan deaths, but the conditions on the ground are so changing so rapidly that it's really hard to keep up. So my point is that... Uh, we, we have to stop escalating it. And, you know, uh, Common Dreams reported, or I think uh, was in the Huffington Post reported just today that the State Department, people in the State Department have been told not to use the terms of de-escalation and other terms that would indicate a move towards uh, towards a rational solution to this. And, and instead, instead, the State Department, the the, uh, the U.S., uh, the U.S. is you know piling on the the, the weapons uh, and you know weapons for more carnage. Anthony Blinken is work is uh, traveling around the Middle East, trying to get the countries in the Middle East to be supportive of what Israel is doing, and there's no attention to the Palestinian plight. And the Palestinian plight includes Hamas. I mean, Hamas, you know, there needed, the wall, the wall between Gaza and Israel needs to be broken down, needed to be broken down. But what wasn't needed for then people to come through and slaughter Israeli citizens, Israeli, uh, Israeli folks uh, close to Gaza. Um, that's a war crime. What Israel is doing now is a war crime. They're attacking civilians with no, for, for no purpose other than to demolish them. And so uh, all of this is uh, really needs uh, it needs to be calmed down. And right now what, what our government is doing and what the Israelis are doing, or at least the Israeli government, uh, is ratcheting it up. And it's not making it safe for anybody. Israel is not safe for, for Jews, for Palestinians, certainly. And it's making it's less safe for folks here in the United States, both for Jews and Muslims 
and Palestinian Americans. They're being they're they're threatened. They're scared, and we need to de-escalate the situation. Shelley, I've been uh, I've been watching way too much television and reading many too many uh, newspaper. Uh, articles in the last couple of days, and so I'm—I don't know that I'm capable of framing an intelligent question at this point. But I keep thinking as I watch the all the players and some ex- unexpected ones um, jump in to to uh, make take their strokes. That question that all the criminologists ask uh, and politicians ask: uh, Who benefits? And does anybody benefit from this, from the current situation? Can you, can you see it as, uh, as a, a pathway to any of the players for uh, coming out on the other end in, in a better situation? That's a good question, Ruth Ann. Uh, I, I would say the, the, the people who benefit from this are the weapons manufacturers oh. and the military contractors. I don't see a single benefit from, you know, I don't see anyone benefiting from this in the short term, in the long run, from what's going on, other than the suppliers of the war machine. And if uh, if we run out of, if everybody runs out of money before the machines run out, then uh, I guess they win, or whoever has the most weapons wins. Uh, the other the other thing that we see is a certain amount of posturing that I guess we have to expect from politicians. Um, and everybody, according to them, everybody is in the right and everybody is virtuous. Uh, some people are turning to Donald Trump for a guide on uh, who the good guys are. Have you seen some of his his comments? What do you think of of him as a as a as an, a, a voice added in to to stir up the porridge? Well, yeah, I mean, his, his, you know, I don't want to spend too much time talking about him. No, I don't either. spend a whole, a whole hour on that. Um, but, uh, I mean, I, I have to say that I think that uh, in this case, I, you know, his, his words and the way, he, the way he manipulates people is, is, is horrific. But I'm not feeling too much better about uh, our president either, mm. who is doing the same thing that I was that I mentioned at the beginning that the Palestinian voice is not heard Palestinians are are they're people just like just like anybody else you know they're good ones they're bad ones they're smart ones they're lovely ones they're and and that's not acknowledged that's not acknowledged and I think that that's happening in in the press as well you know in the mainstream media has been ter- terrible about about this and so there's no opening for for people to acknowledge humanity. I just wanted to mention here before we get to a, a question and comment from our co-host uh, Richard Hill that we had invited a, a representative of the Anti-Defamation League chapter of Connecticut this morning. They were unable to attend uh, this live show because of the Jewish Sabbath, understandably so. But I uh, wanted to mention that. Richard, you have a, a comment or question for Shelley. Yeah, Shelley, you've mentioned the uh, issue of the mainstream media in this country, which has, I think, really failed, in my opinion. I wonder if you could give a little bit more comment on what you've seen in the mainstream media. Just to give one example, Scott just mentioned the Anti-Defamation League, whose CEO is Jonathan Greenblatt, 
who has appeared on MSNBC multiple times. And the other day, he compared the demonstrations by people supporting Palestinians in this country to the Nazi rallies of 1939. His voice is very prominent in the U.S. media. I wonder if you'd comment on the presentation of this issue in the mainstream media a little bit more. Another thing that I think is remarkable is that there don't seem to be any mainstream media outlets actually reporting from inside Gaza. Very few reports are coming out directly from U.S. media outlets. I'll I'll stop and, and let you comment. Right. Yeah. So let me uh, sort of answer the last part first. The New York Times this morning, at least on their online edition, actually had a report, uh, not a report, but a video of two young women from Gaza in their, both in their uh, early 20s. I don't know how they got this report, but the young women are recorded talking about how frightening it is. They're in the northern part of Gaza right now, or at least when the videos were made. You can hear the bombs going off in the distance, and the young women are talking about how frightening it is and how it's just complete luck that they're still alive and they expect to die. And so I think the mainstream media is not completely out of it in terms of this, but I would say, you know, it's a 95% uh, thing where you don't see that kind of reporting, but when you do see it, it has enormous impact. With regard to the ADL, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the ADL. The ADL has given, you know, masquerades as a civil rights organization, but it has given cover to the atrocities that have been going on in the occupation for years. And with regard to, you know, labeling Americans who are standing up for human rights and an end to the violence in Palestine and labeling that as to be similar to Nazi rallies is abhorrent. I mean, you know, it's to me as a Jew and as an activist and as someone who has worked in this area for, for my, adult, my adult life, it's insulting and disgusting. And to have that be echoed on mainstream media, on MSNBC or wherever he was, atrocious. I have, I have nothing else to say about it. It just encourages further violence. It encourages folks like uh, yesterday. There was a, a rally at Brooklyn College in, in New York City in support of what's happening in, in Gaza, right? And not in support of the attacks, but it's obviously in support of the trauma of, of people in Gaza. And a New York City councilwoman showed up at the rally with a gun sticking out of her, her belt. And she was arrested. But having people like Greenblatt, who are supposedly leaders in, in support of civil rights and working against anti-Semitism, they're encouraging that kind of thing. And I'm not saying in that particular case, but uh, in general, it's just uncalled for and it's despicable. And I'm glad the ADS isn't on this program. That's all I can say. They don't belong on, on having a voice on this radio station. Well, Shelley, I did want to ask you about a, a particular quote. It's a very disturbing quote in line with some of the things you just mentioned. Israel's uh, president, Isaac Herzog, uh, said the following at a press conference in Israel yesterday, Friday, quote, it is an entire nation out there that is responsible. It is not true this rhetoric about civilians not being aware, not involved. It's absolutely not true. They could have risen up. They could have fought against the evil regime which took over Gaza in a coup d'etat, unquote. When a reporter asked Herzog, again, he's the president of Israel, 
to clarify whether he meant to say that Gazans did not remove Hamas from power, that that makes them by implication legitimate targets. Herzog claimed he did not say that, but then went on to say, quote, when you have a missile in your damn kitchen and you want to shoot it at me, am I allowed to defend myself? That was his quote. I just wanted to get your reaction because it's the inflammatory rhetoric coming from all sides, of course, is not just limited to Israel in this very emotional moment. But what's your reaction to, it's not just some guy off the street. It's not a radical settler. This is the president of Israel who said that. That's a, a really good question, Scott. I'm glad you asked it. Um, so two, th- two, two parts to the answer to that. Uh, the first is that <clears throat> I have to acknowledge the trauma that, that Israelis are going through right now. I mean, I, on top of the whole judicial reform, uh, so-called reform uh, issue that has roiled the country for um, for for weeks, months now, um, on top of that with Israelis feeling that they were going to lose what for them was democracy and being attacked and having 1,300 of their countrymen murdered by Hamas and not knowing what was going to happen next. And, you know, both Israelis and and, uh, Jewish Americans who have family in Israel are in grief and mourning. And so I just want to shine a light on that um, because when I speak about Palestinian suffering and grief and, and danger and lack of safety, the same is true for Israelis in, in the sense that they're suffering with this too. And so I, I need to uh, make a point of that. The second thing is that in terms of what uh, Isaac Herzog said, you can turn that around. Israel has has had an occupation going with a brutal military occupation. It's gotten a lot worse over the last 20 years. It's been there for since 750,000 Palestinians were driven from their homes in in the late 1940s. One could argue that you know Israeli citizens, while they're not, they didn't do it directly. That why haven't they stood up? Why haven't they made their country you know behave according to human norms and according to international law? Why are they just several miles away from a land where people are having their homes demolished? They're having their children stolen from their homes, imprisoned, questioned, and made confessions in a language they don't understand, harassed, brutalized, having their olive groves taken down, having settlers come into their villages and execute for grums and burning their houses down. Why haven't Israeli citizens in their democracy, which they've been fighting for, why haven't they stood up and put an end to that? So it goes both ways. I agree the problem in Gaza and in the West Bank, uh, maybe more in Gaza than in the West Bank, is it's easy to say that you should stop bodies like Hamas from from doing what they did, from committing these atrocities in Israel. But it's a little bit harder to, to do that when you're cooped up in a small area of land in the densest population, most densely populated area in the world, probably. It's easy to stand on your podium and tell those people that they should rise up. I think everybody should rise up, but it's a little bit harder to do it when you're trying to figure out where your next meal is coming from and when the electric's going to go off and when the water's going to be safe to drink. Yeah. Ruth Ann, do you have a, uh, a question or comment for Shelley? I am older than Israel. <laughs> At least I'm older than the state <laughs> of Israel. Uh, uh-huh. I can't say that I remember uh, its, its um, 
institutionalizing uh, because I was just a little mm-hmm. child. But I can say that all the time that I was growing up, all the years that I was in school, I'm from New Jersey. We tend to be pretty eclectic there. All my teachers were very much rooting for Israel and in many of the lessons and lectures that figured in and um, in our in my circle of friends, everybody was behind Israel. We saw it as a beautiful thing. We saw it, in fact, a lot the way uh, uh, the um, music festival that was so heinously disrupted uh, over the over the past few days saw it as a, as a chance to come together. Uh, if you're from a country where where all kinds of religions are mixed together. If you have any powers of observation, you begin to see that that's a really good thing, that people can, in fact, coexist in a kind of joyful way. Uh, all my friends in, in school, uh, we went to everybody, everybody else's churches. We were fascinated by, by uh, comparing religions and, and practices and rituals. Um, and I don't understand how that can't be learned by adults because one of the most horrendous thoughts that crossed my mind when I heard about the attack on the on the music festival this past week was that's why I didn't go to Woodstock because I was afraid of the uh, at that time of the U.S. military and what they might do to that gathering of oh people with drugs. Um, what is ma- the matter with us uh, that we are so quick to tribe up? In any any time when maybe the water is scarce or the crops were bad or the, a road goes through and some houses are going to be sacrificed, we're so we're so quick to to get into our tribes and be uh, place ourselves in the tribe that's right, and then automatically all the other tribes become wrong and they have fewer rights than we. Uh, the, the the example of kids getting together and not really being particularly concerned about who's who. I don't know why we can't hold that. And so that's my philosophical question for you. It has no answer, I know, but I, I'd like to hear you. If you, yeah. could, if you could follow that. I can answer. I, I can speak to that. I, I'm in the same rough age group as you are. <laughs> and, so, and I, in preparation for my bar mitzvah, uh, I was in Hebrew school and Sunday school for many years. So my voice was better. I would sing the Hatikvah for you right now. I know it. The Hatikva is in English, the hope, that's the Israeli national anthem. When I was in school, in Hebrew school, I remember going to assemblies and to events around that time. And it was, yeah, it was joyful. There was no no mention whatsoever of of, of the Nakba, of, the, of Palestine, of anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was completely gone. I recently recovered some of my Hebrew books, my, my, my workbooks from my Sunday school where, where there were questions and answers. And there was one page that spoke about this, and it basically was a one page of complaining about Arabs in, in Israel. And, you know, it was basically derogatory. The questions were leading one to be derogatory, and my responses were, were derogatory about Arabs because that's what I was learning. Hmm. And so... We have to teach our kids better. We have to stop teaching that. You know, I live in New Haven, and New Haven is an enormously diverse community in skin shade and ethnicity and faith and, and political leanings uh, in every, every way. And when I travel to other parts of our country, 
that aren't as diverse, I miss it. I can't wait to get, to get back to New Haven. Mm-hmm. And when I come back, it's like, why am I so happy to be here? And it's because of what I just said. You know, it's that diversity. I remember when I was a kid, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood that was, uh, it was the Jews and the Italians. The Italians were all Catholic, and, and I, was, I was a Jewish kid. And I went to confession with my Roman Catholic friends and sort of hung out outside the church while they went and confessed all the awful things they had done. Mm-hmm. We weren't racially mixed, but, you know, now I live in a city that is very racially mixed, and it's, it's a blessing to, to be living here. And until we recognize that, until we celebrate that, we're going to be where we are. We're going to be with the, the, the situation that you described. So, so how, can, how can this personal instinct, maybe, at least this personal desire, how can it be turned into a national desire or a political desire? Uh, as long as there are microphones, I'm afraid, I'm afraid it can't be. Yeah. Right now, I... I throw my I throw my hands up and what we can do with our national dialogue. <laughs> you know, I, I think we need to look at what's being locally and celebrate celebrate the things that are being done locally because there's good things going on in so many of our communities and and they're silenced. You know, the only thing that's there is, is the is the conflict and the the you know, the hate. One thing I would say is that you know, I struggled with this as a Jew for, for quite a while with, with the situation in Israel and Palestine, and I didn't want to confront it. And it wasn't until I went on a, few, a couple of trips to, to the West Bank, to Jerusalem, to Israel, that, that by seeing what I saw and by meeting people and by understanding, understanding what they're living with, it, compl- it changed my life and it changed my perspective and it helped me get to a place that you're talking, that you're suggesting that people be at, which is to understand what people's situations are and understand what their, what, the beauty of them. You know, when I was in the West Bank, one of my trips there was a bicycle tour, the entire length of the West Bank. And I know that you can hardly imagine somebody doing that, especially someone who's Jewish. But I did it with a group of people. I identified myself as Jewish from time to time. We had dinners in people's houses, and we got to know each other. And I think that kind of thing—not you know—not everybody can can go to Palestine or go to Israel and and do that. But it's the kind of thing that that makes it possible to understand each other. And, and certainly, we can do that more locally. Of course, the people who are benefiting from what it is now are the same people making the guns uh, and getting rich off the, off the conflict. I'm, I'm right. going to hand over to people who are more focused than I am. <laughs> this <laughs> no, has been, I, I've loved talking to you. That's an important question you raised, of course. This is Resistance Roundtable. I'm Scott Harris, joined by uh, co-hosts Ruth Ann Baumgartner and Richard Hill. And our guest this morning is Shelley Altman, chairperson of the New Haven chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace, and I believe, uh, Richard, you have a, a question or comment for Shelley. It was very moving to hear your accounts of your growing up and uh, the training in Sunday school and learning Hebrew or trying to learn Hebrew. That's a tough language. And also your experience in the West Bank. I think that's so important that you, you took that step to actually 
you know, learn firsthand what's going on in this situation, which has been going on since the formation of Israel in 1948. I just wanted to give one data point here. The numbers in the death toll in Gaza is now 2,215 dead from the Israeli bombing and imminent invasion. And in that number, there are 724 children who have been killed in Gaza. So this number approaches the 2,400 killed in the 2014 Israeli assault on Gaza. Israel was responding to the rocket attacks from from Gaza that were, at that point, extremely ineffectual. They would travel a few miles and then really do very little damage. In any case, what I wanted to say was that as the situation in Gaza becomes more dire, with decision by Israel to cut off water, food, and fuel. There is, I think, a shift that's happening in the U.S. political class. Fifty-five congresspeople sent a letter to Biden urging him to take action, make a statement of that would shift the American position that you mentioned, that the State Department earlier had said they recommended that high-level officials do not want the press materials to include three specific phrases, de-escalation slash ceasefire, an end to violence and bloodshed, or restoring calm. However, the next day, Joe Biden, in a speech in Philadelphia, said, it is also a priority for me to urgently address the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. At my direction, our teams are working in the region, including communicating directly with the government of Israel, Egypt, and Jordan, and other Arab nations in the United Nations to surge support. I think he means being humanitarian support to citizens of Gaza. I'm wondering what you make of this situation, which is approaching critical mass in Gaza, and what appears to be a change in the complexion of the U.S. response to to this crisis. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Richard. So a couple of comments. The first is that the uh, letter that you referred to was off by uh, McGovern, Representative McGovern from Massachusetts, uh, Pocan from, I believe, Indiana, Kamala Jayapal, who's uh, chaired Progressive Caucus, and Jan Schakowsky from Illinois, who is Jewish. And they called for action on the food, water, and electric uh, supplies for the creation of the humanitarian corridor so that supplies can be delivered. To discourage hate crimes in the U.S., which, you know, domestically, this is already, as I mentioned before, becoming a serious problem here that we're already having to deal with. And humanitarian assistance for God and Israel. So... I I always feel this whole humanitarian assistance issue matched up against the creation of the conditions that cause humanitarian assistance is such a conundrum because it feels like a game. We're playing this game where we create the conditions and then we have to bring in humanitarian assistance and we do. And Congress people who are strongly supportive of the continuing occupation and going on for 75 years and the continuing oppression of Palestinians are very strong on supplying humanitarian assistance. They wanted to do that, they'll work to do it, and, you know, good for them for doing that. But why are we creating conditions that require it? And so I agree with you that I'm seeing a small shift in both the political realm, uh, as, you know, indicated by this letter we were both just talking about, as well as in, you know, a little bit in press, uh, in terms of, like, the uh, the video I mentioned that was in the, on the New York Times site. 
that we're beginning to say this has to stop and this is a catastrophe in multiple ways, not just in, in one way. But I guess I'm addressing the paradox between continuing to support and to pile the weapons on, but also provide humanitarian support. It, it seems like a paradox to me that we're trying to do both at the same time. Yeah. And let me say one other, one other thing, which is sort of is kind of related with regard to why is this happening, or, or or how long has this been happening? When the state of Israel was created in 1948, as we all know, and there was a movement to populate, to bring Jews into the state for many years before in, in the Zionist movement. In 1940, a gentleman named Yosef Weitz, who was the head of the transfer committee uh, for Jewish land settlement, said, there's no way but to transfer the Arabs from here to neighboring countries. Not one village, not one tribe must be left. Only after this transfer will the country be able to absorb millions of our brothers, our Jewish brothers. And, you know, shortly thereafter, David Ben-Gurion, who we all know, said, I support compulsory transfer. I don't see anything immoral in it. So... The ridding of the territory of Arabs, of non-Jews, has been a very clear stated goal of the Zionist movement. And part of it is because not enough Jews migrated to historical Palestine for it to become a Jewish majority. And part of it was just, it was basically to have it be Jewish only. And it's played out in so many different ways. And to me, this is just another way that that original goal is playing out. It was played out in 48. It was played out in not letting Palestinians into Israel. Uh, by and large, uh, 20% of the population is Palestinian, but no Palestinians, no descendants of Palestinians can come into Israel. So in the midst of all this horrific war that's going on, part of it is satisfying a goal. I mean, Israel is telling Palestinians, as far as we know, I mean, here we are, it's what, almost 11 o'clock Eastern time. So it's about 7 o'clock in the evening in Gaza it's possible that Israel has already sent the ground troops in. It's possible, you know, they're telling everybody in North Gaza to migrate, take all their things and mig- get the hell out and, you know, go south. To Palestinians, that is evocative of exactly what happened in 1948. They don't know if they're going to be able to come back to their homes. They may be stuck wherever they go forever. And so I'm rambling a little bit, but it needs to be said that this is not contradictory to the original intent of the Zionist project. Thank you for that, Shelley. I wanted to, before we run out of time, Shelley, just discuss a bit about the future. The U.S. has been Israel's main ally since 1948, as we've been talking about. They provided, uh, we, our tax dollars, have provided billions of dollars in both economic and military aid. And of course, as we've been talking about th- this morning, critics, including yourself, blame the U.S. for not pushing Israel harder to work for a peace agreement with Palestinians over recent decades. Instead, both Democratic and Republican presidents have supported or not stood in the way of Israeli policies that expanded Jewish settlements in the Palestinian West Bank and imposed repressive laws on occupied Palestinians that has dramatically increased since Israel's most extremist right-wing government took power last December. This is an impossible question to to answer, Shelley, but I want your thoughts on this. How should U.S. policy change its focus after this latest bloodshed? Thinking about the impossible answer to the impossible question. So I think, is Israel answerable to the United States? To me, the question you ask raises that question. I feel like there are more questions than there are answers. But 
if Israel is answerable, and by answerable, I don't mean that they have to do everything we say. I mean, are, are they even considering what we want? And I don't think that we've made ourselves clear enough. You know, I think that it's been the policy of the United States for how many years, for how many administrations, going back to Bush, Reagan, I don't, I don't, I'm not even sure, ever since the settlement project started, uh, to be against illegal settlements being built, to be against annexation. Uh, the Trump administration had different, a different take on it, but all the others were the same, both Republican and Democrat and Republicans and Dem- Democrats. So if that's been our policy and we have this ironclad, immutable friendship with Israel, those two things are contradictory. You know, friends don't let friends drive drunk. And that may be what's been stated, but it's not our policy because if it was our policy, we'd be executing on it and we're not executing on it. So from the United States point of view, we need to radically, radically change our behavior on on this issue, on, on this whole situation. You know, Biden made a big deal over not being willing to meet with Netanyahu because the judicial reform thing and and because of all the violent, racist, violent, uh, instigating members of his cabinet, like Bessel Smotrich and Ben Gavir, who are both ministers in the government. So Biden made a big deal over not seeing Netanyahu until they happened to bump into each other at the United Nations. But that was just all show. He can't do that and then just turn around and keep sending the $3.8 billion a year of weaponry, piling the weaponry on in this in this Gaza uh, situation. We're talking out of both sides of our mouth. We have to stop talking and doing the right thing. Thank you for that, Shelley. We're almost out of time, and I wanted to give uh, Ruth Ann uh, our last question uh, and, and get some final thoughts from Shelley before we have to sign off. Um, I've been quite satisfied. <laughs> I'm not sure uh, you know, the question of where we're going and how we can get there is a good one. I think it would be nice if uh, if we could uh, remove just a few voices from the conversation, one of them being the uh, former resident of the White House. It would be nice if there were a way to give him something else to talk about so that he could get off, get off the stage on this issue. I don't know that anybody pays much attention to him anymore, but the people willing to get riled up, certainly he's doing his best to rile them up, and it would be nice if, he, if uh, the news stopped covering him anyway. What do you think about the, just the voices that have been included in, in, the, in the conversation? Are we hitting all the important voices? Are we minimizing important voices? Are we uh, amplifying unimportant voices? Well, we're certainly amplifying unimportant voices, Ruben. Um, that's for sure. One other thing that I wanted to mention uh, with regard to what we should be doing is several highly respected human rights organizations, Human Rights Watch, Patelum in Israel, and Amnesty International, all three independently, after scrupulous research over a period of years, all came up with reports that reported that Israel is committing crimes of apartheid. And yet, politicians in the United States just dismiss it. Or mm-hmm. other folks, you know, folks in leadership say, oh, no, it's not an apartheid state. Just like that. Like, they, that's my opinion, and, and so that's what it is. It's completely dismissing the reality on the ground and the reporting of it and the, and the care with which reporting is done. And so I think the conditions that those reports report on need to be acknowledged and discussed and, and acted on in terms of ameliorating those conditions. And I think that needs to be done before there's any peace talks and arriving at, at, final, at solutions like two-state or one-state or, or 
50 states or whatever, I think that we need to acknowledge the conditions and work to end those conditions before we get anywhere with arriving at a just peace. Thank you, Shelley. We're, we're just about to sign off, but tell our listeners uh, how they can get more information about Jewish Voice for Peace. A website would be good. Yeah, so uh, the Jewish Voice for Peace website is easily enough, jvp.org. Um, if you sign on, if you sign on uh, to J- to, at that website, uh, and uh, you, you will then uh, become a, uh, a supporter of it, and you'll get information about campaigns that JVP is, okay. is working on. Sounds good. Well, just got to say goodbye, and uh, thanks for joining us on Resistance Roundtable. We'll be back next month.